Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Let us worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Lift up your hearts. Gracious Father, you are the sovereign author of all things. You have ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your knowledge. Every lily of the field is clothed by your wisdom, and not one hair can fall apart from your authoritative instruction. The life and breath of every living thing is completely in your hand. Every atom, every molecule, every dust particle dances in exact rhythm to your heavenly song. And therefore, you planned that a man would be carrying a water pitcher into Jerusalem just before Passover. You planned that a donkey with a willing owner would be tied up. You planned that crowds would gather with palm branches. You planned a rambunctious rambunctious cheering section of children. You planned the grumpy scribes and priests and the officious merchants in your house of prayer. You planned that cords would be left in just the right place to be twisted into a whip. You planned it all, and nothing was out of place. You planned it all before the worlds began. You planned the suffering and death of your own son in our place to satisfy all justice, to crush death and Satan and sin beneath his feet, and to raise him and us and this whole cursed world from the dead on the third day. And so we worship you now, good and wise author of all, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. First Peter 2 says, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness." The words righteously and righteousness could just as easily be translated justly and justice. Jesus endured unjust treatment, not as a doormat, not in apathy, but because he was appealing to a greater court, a higher court, to a more effective justice. He entrusted himself to him who always judges righteously. Jesus did this in order that all our injustice might be put to death and we might live for true justice in him. But the appeal to the justice of God for sinful people can only be in Christ. Otherwise, you are asking to be destroyed. How can a sinful people ask for justice? The Bible's answer is only in Christ. And this means on the one hand, refusing to revile when you are reviled, refusing to threaten when you are abused. And on the other hand, it means refusing to back down, refusing to surrender and continuing steadfastly in obedience, entrusting ourselves to God, just like Jesus. So what will it be? The frail and vindictive justice of man that will ultimately be swallowed up in God's perfect justice, or will it be the justice of the cross Remember, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The justice of the cross does not ignore sin and evil, but the justice of the cross is an appeal to the highest court, the highest judge, the perfect judge in the blood of Christ, and will not the judge of the whole world do right? Will he not hear the cries of the poor and the oppressed? Will he not have mercy even on the high-handed, hard-hearted sinners who turn to him in true humility? This justice of the cross is being worked out here and now in history. But on the last day, on the great and final triumphal entry, there will be nothing undone that needed doing. There will be nothing done that needs undoing. Because Jesus appealed to the one who judges justly, all of our cases have been perfectly appealed to the Father. And so all will be well and all will be right. 
Praise the Lord. Isaiah 30 says, now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Father, we confess that we are a rebellious and lying people. We are children who have refused to hear your law, and we have refused those around us who have tried to tell us true things. We have indulged our pride by telling ourselves that we would listen if they'd only say it more nicely, with more compassion. But what we are really insisting on is that everyone leave us the right to our sin. Father, we confess that we have done this in the name of justice, taking offense easily when others have tried to raise things with us and holding them to standards that would utterly crush us if they were applied to ourselves. Father, we know that you are the great judge and that you see all things and know all things, even the thoughts and intents of our hearts, which we hardly even understand. But we know that you require truth in the inward parts. And so, Father, please forgive us for all of this. Forgive us for taking offense when our parents and pastors and teachers and spouses and friends have tried to correct us. Forgive us for refusing to hear your law and forgive us for demanding the sort of vindictive justice that would crush us if only it would crush our enemies as well. So we appeal to the justice of the cross, the blood of Jesus shed for sinners, and we ask you to teach us the wisdom of the cross. Father, we also know that if we in the church regard sin in our lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. And so we ask all this in the good name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. When God grants repentance, he always grants a teachable spirit. So are you ready to learn? Are you hungry for God's wisdom? Your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is from John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. These are the words of God. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for, the, for that they heard he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, perceive ye, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this occasion that we are remembering and celebrating. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us today. I pray that the word would be driven into our hearts, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are 
observing, celebrating Palm Sunday, one week before Easter Sun Sunday, one week before our celebration of the resurrection, that is to say our annual celebration of the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection on a weekly basis. Every Lord's Day is a, an Easter. Every Lord's Day is a resurrection Sunday, but we are commemorating this on an annual basis as well. We're doing this because we're seeking to recover a Christian sense of time and history. If Jesus is Lord of the world, that means, that means he is Lord necessarily of time. He's the Lord of history. He's not just the Lord of space, he's the Lord of space and time together. And if we leave uh, our history vacant, if we leave our time vacant, it's not going to be left vacant. It's going to be filled up with other uh, gods. Other gods are going to be commemorated. Other authorities are going to be remembered during this time. And it is either a Christian calendar or it's a secular calendar. Uh, you're going to mark your time in terms of Christmas and Easter, or you're going to mark your time in terms of Memorial Day and Labor Day and the 4th of July. Now, there's nothing wrong with civil holidays, but if you have banished the Lordship of Christ from your understanding of time, and all you have are civil holidays, those civil holidays, as those civil holidays are going to, uh, going to start to assume a greater importance than they ought to have. So, in some sense, this means we want to recover a church year. But though we are seeking to escape a secularized calendar, we must never forget that we got this secular calendar in, in part because of a reaction away from the very real problem of Saints Day glut. And this means that we cannot just be aware of the problems of our immediate past, the civil holidays having too much importance. We have to look back farther than that, and hence it's a means of guarding the future. What we need is balance in all of this. If, if we have a sa sacred calendar, but it's just uh, encrusted with saints' days and observances the way an old ship is encrusted with barnacles, you're going to have a, pro you're going to get, you're going to provoke an overreaction to that. And that's what we had in the Enlightenment was an overreaction to uh, the, the thought in some parts of the Middle Ages, some parts of the medieval period, that if one's good, two must be better. And if two is good, then four must be better. And so we just keep going that way until finally there's too much and people react. We are in the position of seeing too much secularism, too much emptiness, too many hollow spaces in our public sphere. And so we are starting to say, wait a minute, let's go, let's go back to recovering a Christian sense of time. But you don't want to overreact yet again. You don't want to veer off in the opposite direction too far. We want to be principled and biblical in how we do this. So as we remember Palm Sunday, we, we want to follow the, what the reformers uh, did. When the reformers uh, got rid of, you know, the anniversary of the death of St. Dennis's cat, and they, you know, they said, let's not do that anymore. Uh, they, they limited everything to what they called five evangelical feast days. And these, these were events in the life of Christ. Uh, they, it was a Christocentric celebration. So Christmas is the birth of uh, Christmas is the birth of Christ. Good Friday is commemorating the death of Christ. Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday is the resurrection of the Lord. And then we have Ascension Sunday, and then we have Pentecost. These are all things that Jesus said and did. We want everything to be focused on Jesus. And so the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem is one of these events in Christ's life, and we are marking that triumphal entry. And we see in our text this morning that the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday entry, was a big deal. It's one of the events that's, in, that's recorded in all four Gospels. Three of the Gospels have... Um, uh, are the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there are many areas of overlap in the synoptics. But when you have an event that occurs in all four, you should sit up and take notice. And the triumphal entry is one of them. So quite a few people had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We see that in verse 12. The word had gotten out and Jesus was expected. And when they heard the news, they cut down palm branches and they went out to meet him. They, they met him sort of at the city limits to escort him in. Uh, verse 13, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. We are given some details about how they got that donkey in the other gospels. But he sat on the donkey, verse 14, and thus he fulfilled the words of the prophet Zechariah. 
That, uh, that fulfillment of that particular prophecy is given to us in verse 15. The disciples did not get the full import of the triumphal entry. They did not understand how important this was, which tells us, incidentally, that it was important. All right, if it says the disciples didn't get what a big deal it was while it was happening, while, while they were participating in it, but later they slapped their foreheads and said, oh yeah, this was, this was a big deal, that should make us recognize from our vantage point that yes, this was a big deal. So they didn't get the full import of the triumphal entry until after Jesus was glorified, uh, crucified, and resurrected. Uh, resurrected Jesus was glorified in the crucifixion, he was glorified in his burial, and he was glorified in his resurrection and he was glorified in his ascension and reception into heaven. Now, these people were in Jerusalem, and they were talking about the raising of Lazarus, verse 17. Now, Lazarus, um, Mar Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were siblings, and they lived in Bethany. There's some, there's some discussion and debate. This, this is a reasonable uh, 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 a reasonable topic of debate, but some people take uh, the woman in Luke who, wa who, um, who poured ointment on the Lord's feet and, and wiped his feet with her hair as Mary Magdalene. That's the very, uh, it, well, in, at the end of Luke 7, this woman, unnamed woman does this. At the beginning of Luke 8, Mary Magdalene is introduced for the ver very first time, just a few verses down. And then in John, we have an occasion where Mary, the sister of Martha, does the same thing, anointing the Lord's feet. Uh, and there's some chronological challenges and whatnot, but I take uh, this Mary to be Mary Magdalene, but that's an open, uh, that is an open question. Nevertheless, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany where Lazarus had died. Bethany was just a few miles outside Jerusalem. It was very close by. All right, so the resurrection of Lazarus, remember Lazarus, uh, Jesus was away when Lazarus died. Uh, word had been sent to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. He delayed coming, and by the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Jesus tells them to roll the stone away, and they say, but he's beginning to decompose by this point. You don't want to do that. Jesus said, didn't I, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory? And Jesus summons Lazarus from the grave. Now, this is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Lazarus had been dead. He was dead and buried. He was dead and gone. And there was a crowd also, incidentally, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were apparently important people. They were, they were not... Um, uh, they were not nobodies. They were not often some uh, back, back part of Bethany because a number of important Jews went out, to, went out to Bethany to commiserate with them, to mourn the passing of Lazarus. And so there was something of a crowd there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the stone was rolled away and Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes hopping out four days, four days after burial in his grave clothes everybody was flummoxed, but not everyone was converted, right? Everyone was flummoxed. Jesus, this is one of the most stupendous miracles ever, and Jesus didn't persuade the entire crowd. He didn't, he didn't persuade everybody. Some of them went off and told the Jews, we've got to do something about this guy. He's doing stuff, right? Yeah, like raising the dead. And so the things even got to the point where they were talking about killing Lazarus, Right? We need to kill Lazarus. We need to do something about Jesus because this is sim simply getting out of hand. He's upsetting our way of doing things. Our way of doing things is to die and rot. That's our way of doing things. And, and he comes in with authority over death. What are we going to do? So the buzz about this event right outside Jerusalem, the buzz had gotten around in Jerusalem, and that was the catalyst for the crowd on Palm Sunday. The resurrection of Lazarus was the catalyst. John tells us that. This in part was why such a great crowd had gathered. Verse 18, the Pharisees had trouble seeing outside the immediate moment, uh, verse 19, but they could see that everything appeared to be running in Christ's direction. The whole world had gone after him, they said. In it, uh, so what they're saying is, is for the enemies of Christ and for the friends of Christ, for the disciples of Christ and for the enemies of Christ, this whole Passion Week was a roller coaster ride for everybody. 
It was a roller coaster, super highs and super lows, but they were just opposite. Right? They, they happened at different times. The triumphal entry, the disciples were exultant. All the followers of Christ in Jerusalem were singing Hosanna. The, it, it, Jesus had just raised a dead man outside of Jerusalem. And the enemies of Christ, who remained his enemies, were said, look, th this is hopeless. We're, we're losing. We're losing. It didn't occur to them to, maybe I should repent and go over to his side. Maybe I should believe in him. We're losing. But then, when they successfully... Um, uh, paid Judas to betray him, and Jesus was arrested at night and railroaded in a uh, trial in the middle of the night and crucified, and Jesus was dead. Jesus was gone. Now the disciples are despondent, and the enemies of Christ are in the ascendancy. Everything, you know, teeter-totters back and forth. In addition, John tells us that there were some Greeks there who had come to worship, verse 20. And they had heard about Jesus, and they asked Philip if they could see him, verse 21. Philip and Andrew then came and asked Jesus about this, verse 22. And Jesus answered them, although it does not appear to be an answer or a straight answer, and said that the hour had come for him to be glorified. And seeing Jesus as glorified is apparently Jesus' understanding of what it means to see him. The Greeks said, can we see Jesus? And Jesus basically says, in order to see me, in order to really see me, you have to see me as glorified, and we're just about there, he says. Death was necessary in order to bear real fruit, verse 24. He then applied the principle more broadly than just himself, applying this truth that a seed must die, a, grain, uh, uh, a kernel of corn must uh, die and go into the ground in order to multiply, in order to bear real fruit, verse 24. 25, I'm sorry. Follow me, Jesus said, and the Father will honor you. You follow me, and the Father will honor you. Verse 26, follow me, Jesus said. But when he did say, but when he did say this, follow me, he said right on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. He says elsewhere that if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Uh, but here, he's about to be arrested. And he says, if anyone wants to see me, Follow me now. Follow me now. I'm, follow me now to Gethsemane. Follow me now uh, into the high priest's house. Follow me to Golgotha. Follow me into the grave and follow me into the heavens. Follow me, Jesus says. Now, throughout the course of his ministry, the Lord Jesus had spent a considerable amount of time, and it's quite marked if you, if you, uh, read the Gospels thinking about this, he'd spent a, a considerable amount of time trying to get people to keep his miracles quiet. He would, do, he would do stupendous things, and then he would tell the leper, now don't tell anybody, you know, or go show yourself to the priest, but limit it to that. Don't, he'd cast a demon out, and he says, but keep this quiet. That was his, a standard operating procedure. He would do a great work of power, and then he would, sell, then he would say, don't tell anybody. But at this point, Palm Sunday, right before his crucifixion. At this point, his hour has come. It's right on top of him. And he does nothing to get this crowd to be quiet. He does nothing to get the, he'd done the great miracle of Lazarus. The buzz had gone around Jerusalem. And this whole, this mob, this multitude meets him. And Jesus says, let it go. Right? He doesn't try to quiet them down at all. As he says elsewhere, if the people were quiet, the stones would cry out. This is a situation that requires a, a, a hymn of triumph. It requires a psalm of triumph. The crowd is here because of the resurrection of Lazarus. And I should say, strictly speaking, it wasn't the resurrection of Lazarus. It was the resuscitation of Lazarus because Lazarus did not, was not brought back from the dead in order never to die again. He was brought back from the dead and Lazarus did have to die again. So he was resuscitated, um, not resurrected the same way Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus does nothing to discourage them from declaring his praise. He does nothing. And in fact, the Pharisees uh, uh, try to get him to get the kids to shut up. You know, don't, they were offended when they heard the praise and, and Jesus was uh, telling them no. When, when they said, get these kids to stop saying this, Jesus said no. If they were quiet, the stones would, the stones would cry out. Jesus is egging the crowd on, in other words. He's not, he's not trying to get his foot on the brake at all, which is a marked difference from what he normally does. 
It's also worth mentioning, I, I should just mention here in passing, it's also worth mentioning here that the old preacher's chestnut that takes Palm Sunday as a time for preaching on the fickleness of crowds is really unfounded. Uh, you know, uh, the crowd that said Hosanna to Jesus, you know, Hosanna to God in the highest, and then three days later they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Well, there's no reason in the text at all for believing that they were the same crowds, the same people. Uh, there's, we just have no indication of it. It's some, there, are, there are occasions, like in John chapter 6, where Jesus is talking to Jews who had believed in, believed in him, they were following him, and then by the end of the conversation with that same crowd, they had turned on him. There, there are indications of that. If you wanted to preach on the fickleness of crowds, go to John 6, but not here. This is not about the fickleness of crowds. The, um, all the indications are that Jesus was arrested, on the sly, he was tried on the sly. We can't arrest him openly, the Jews said, because there would be a riot. It, we, the, um, Jesus had won the population over in the main. And so this was an engineered mob, an engineered crowd that was crying, crucify him, not these people. There's no reason for believing these people were hypocritical in their reception of Jesus. So uh, we all know big cities have the capacity to generate all kinds of crowds. You know, you can fill up one stadium one night for a rock concert and a completely different stadium for a basketball game with different people. There's no, no reason for saying that a city can only produce one kind of crowd. Now, the disciples were caught up in this moment and they were exultant. They, they thought this was wonderful. And all they knew was the glory of that moment. And they were not wrong. It was a real glory. This was real palpable glory. When they sang Hosanna, it was a true Hosanna. If they had been quiet, the stones would have shouted out a true Hosanna. But it was only glory in its preamble form. This was a preamble of glory. This was not the final glory. This was not the ultimate glory. There's a deeper glory coming. There's a deeper glory coming. But in order for that deeper glory to arrive, it was necessary for the corn of wheat, for the, the grain of wheat, to fall into the ground and die. Verse 24. It was necessary. In order to get to the final glory, there has to be a death. You can't, you can't walk, uh, you can't put your hands in your pockets and stroll into glory. There has to be a death. Jesus had to explain this to his disciples. The exaltation they felt was not the grand moment of victory. They thought that the book was ending, but there were still five chapters left, right? They thought, okay, this is it. This is it. The Romans have had it. The, the corrupt leadership of the temple apparatus, the Sadducees, the high priest family, they've all had it. Look, look at the crowd that is welcoming Jesus. Jesus is finally being recognized. He's, he's finally being honored the way he deserves to be honored. We love Jesus, and look, Jerusalem loves Jesus. They're receiving their Messiah, and they're receiving their Messiah the way a Messiah ought to be received. And all of that was true, but it was not yet complete. It was all true. The crowd was sincere. The, these, these people loved Jesus. Jesus had the esteem of the crowds. Jesus had done miracles for years among them. He had raised Lazarus just a short time before. And the disciples saw all this, and their only mistake was that they thought this was the capstone. This is the final end of it. We're, okay, this is it. This is, uh, we're, 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 the, kingdom is the kingdom is here. And they didn't recognize, they didn't reckon on the fact that there had to be a betrayal, treachery from among the 12, a, a, a trial where, where awful things were uh, done, and then the Messiah had to be abused, scourged, nailed to a tree, and he had to die. So, as I mentioned before, the Pharisees were on their very own roller coaster ride, and when the disciples were up, the Pharisees were down. They looked at the triumph of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a royal mount. They heard the same crowds, and they lamented their loss. Behold, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. He has seized control of all the apparatus of running the show. He seized control of them from us. Now, they, uh, the, the people who run the world know where all the levers under the desks are. 
They, they, they know how to operate all the trap doors. They know how to buy people off. They know they can smell out a treacherous heart. They know who to, you know, they, they, they uh, hooked up with uh, Judas. Judas hooked up with them. They, they know how to betray. They know how to backstab. They know how to, they know how to fight dirty. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem that way, the only way they could defeat him at that point was by fighting dirty. So they did. They fought dirty. They fought dirty. And, it, and what happened was not representative of what the people, the rank and file in Jerusalem wanted. There were a number of people that when the Pharisees needed to do the rent a mob thing, they, there were enough people to do that. But uh, they, they got what they got. They got Jesus executed by fighting dirty. So this was a roller coaster ride for them. Despair, scheming, victory, and then ashen despair again. The disciples were operating on the same earthly level, only opposite. They loved Jesus, and so when the, when the, Pharisee, when the uh, enemies of Christ were down, they were up, and so on. Their downs were the other party's ups, and vice versa. And this shows that there's a kind of opposite that is not really a demonstration of the antithesis at all. There's a kind of opposite that isn't really opposite. There's a kind of opposite that isn't opposite. There are the people who welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem, and there are people who opposed his coming into Jerusalem, but that horizontal opposition is not the true opposition. What is the true opposition? The true opposition is not left and right. It's not conservative and liberal and so on. There is, a, there is a correct way to go when you're confronted with left or right. If you're trying to get somewhere, you, could, you, should, you should go right instead of left. There is a correct answer on things like conservative and liberal, but that's not the fundamental antithesis. The real antithesis is death versus life from the dead. That's the real antithesis. Are you dead or alive? Are you dead or alive? If you love the Lord Jesus the, the way you ought to through the gospel, you are alive. And if you don't, you're dead. If you love Jesus and you're going to the wrong church, you're going and you're, you're not sophisticated enough to tell that the preacher's uh, spewing heresy from the pulpit, but you know Jesus, you're alive. And there are people in Orthodox churches who hear nothing but truth from the pulpit, nothing but truth in the, in the confessions of faith. They hear nothing but they're surrounded by truth, but they're dead, right? You can hear the truth and be dead. You can hear the truth and be alive. You can be hearing falsehoods and be alive and hear falsehoods and be dead. And it's not to say that pro proclaiming the truth has no impact on this. It most certainly does because we're told to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. But do not assume that what you're, the way we congregate on a horizontal level is the fundamental divide. The fundamental divide between wheat and tares, between sheep and goats, between, is between death and life. That's the fundamental divide. So in this pandemonium, Certain Greeks came and they wanted to see Jesus. Certain Greeks came and they wanted to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew asked about it and Jesus gave them a cryptic answer. But the answer was not a change of subject. The Lord is actually explaining how it is possible to see Jesus. How is it possible to see Jesus? Do you really want to see him? Do you really want to see him? How... Uh, the answer involves much more than simply arranging for an appointment, which may have been what these Greeks were asking for. You know, they, they may have, we've heard a lot about this teacher. We'd like to meet him. If it was like others who came to me, they, they heard about him, they heard the, heard the news and they wanted to meet him and then they met him and they're undone. Uh, the, the, encountering Jesus is a very different thing than just hearing about him at a distance. But we don't, we don't know, are, the, are these Greeks true seekers after the truth? Were they on a pilgrimage to find God? Or were they just tourists in Jerusalem who heard about an excitement? We don't, we don't know. But Jesus uses their request, their, their question that says, can we have an appointment to see Jesus? He uses it to tell us something deeper, something more profound. The hour is coming, Jesus says, when the Son of Man will be glorified, verse 23. So some guys ask for an appointment. Can, can we see Jesus? Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. Can these guys see you? Jesus says, the hour is coming when the Son of Man will be glorified. 
How will that, how will that glorification occur? The seed must die. Otherwise, Jesus says the seed remains solitary. But if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. Verse 24. So a solitary seed is just a solitary seed. One is one, and that's all it is. In order to bear fruit, in order to have a fruitful life, you must die. In order to bear fruit, you must die. And Jesus is not just talking about himself. When he died, the reason you're here this morning, the reason people are worshiping God through, in the name of Jesus all over the world is because Jesus died. He died and he bore much fruit. But he goes on. He says, this pattern that I'm establishing, this pattern of death and resurrection is a pattern I want you to follow. It's a pattern I, that is set out for you. The one who hates his own life shall regain it in eternal life. The one who grasps to keep it will lose it. Verse 25. The principle, this principle, is now being extended by Jesus to his followers. What he is going to go through, they must go through also. And what Jesus went through, every person here is summoned to go through the same thing. You can, now, we can only do that in him. We can only do that through trusting in him, but every person here is summoned to die and rise in him. Jesus says, Jesus says it this way, if what, what Jesus is going through, they must go through also. If these Greeks really want to see, see me, Jesus is saying, they must follow me. And if they follow him, they will be where he is and they will do what he does. They will be where he is, and they will do what he does. They also will die, and they also will be fruitful. If this happens, then the Father will honor them. Now, this, this is the only means that these Greeks have of seeing him. This is the only means the Greeks have of seeing Jesus that would be any different from how the Pharisees were seeing him. If you look at Jesus on a horizontal plane, you're just going to be taking sides and you're going to be either singing because you're glad he came or you're going to be scheming behind the scenes because you're not glad he came. But Jesus said, there's a deeper level than that. The deeper level is die and be fruitful. The deeper level is this, and this applies to everyone. This applies if you're in fifth grade, if, if this applies to you, dead or alive. If you're in high school, if you're a senior in high school, this applies to you, dead or alive. If you're in college, dead or alive. This is, the, this is the choice that confronts absolutely every sentient being in the human race. Every, everybody who's thinking about truth at all must confront this. Are you dead or alive? And if you're dead, you bear much fruit. Ironically, Jesus says, if you, if you fight for your life, if you hang, cling to your life, you're not going to bear fruit at all. We think that life is fruitful. In God's economy, death is fruitful. We think life is fruitful. Jesus says, death is fruitful. So, the Pharisees saw Jesus a certain way, and the disciples saw him a certain way, but on that same horizontal plane, and although it was good and righteous and holy, it still wasn't enough. So, Jesus is the greater Lazarus. The crowd was there because they had seen Lazarus raised or had heard about Lazarus being raised. We see that in verses 18 and, uh, 17 and 18. This meant that the multitude with the palm, palm fronds knew that Jesus had authority over death. They knew that Jesus had authority over death. He had stood outside a tomb where the corpse inside had been there for four days. He told them to roll the stone away, and Jesus said to the dead man, come out, and he did. So that's something. All right, this man has some kind of authority that is spooky, beyond spooky. Jesus has authority over death. But they still didn't know everything that Jesus had with him. They still didn't know. They thought that Jesus had reached the utter frozen limit. They thought that Jesus had displayed greater power than could ever be displayed in this world at all. And at first glance, it certainly looked that way. They did not, what they did not know was that Jesus had authority over death from the inside of it. 
See, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, when he resuscitated Lazarus, he was exercising authority over death, all right, but it was still death over there and Jesus over here. Jesus was exercising authority over the death of Lazarus externally. He was, he was not a participant. Lazarus was the one who had died. Jesus had not died. If Jesus was here and the death was over there, then Jesus could fight with death the old-fashioned way, the way a knight might fight with a dragon. So Jesus would say, where's the enemy? Where's the dead man? And he travels to, to go where the dead man is. And Jesus comes as an external warrior, and he challenges death to a fight, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and that was a mighty miracle of power. But Jesus was interested in far more than simply being opposed to death in some form of external combat. A lot more was going on. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And for Jesus, that wasn't nearly good enough. He hadn't, he, he hadn't topped himself yet. He, had, he hadn't come to the summit of what God wanted him to do. It was a great work, all right. And Jesus knew that it was a great work. Jesus knew that the glory of God would be revealed when he raised Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus was interested in far more than that. Our Lord Jesus Christ walked into the maw of death in order to be swallowed by it and to defeat death while a dead man. Jesus defeated death dead. Jesus, when he raised Lazarus, was alive. Jesus was a great wonder worker. This is the man who walked on water. This is the man who turned water into wine. This is the man who fed the 5,000. This is the man who healed lepers. This is the man who healed people at a distance. Return home, your, your son is going to be better by the time you get there. Jesus had great authority. But Jesus said, I want to perform my final miracle as a human being, as a descendant of David, I'm going to perform my final miracle while dead. I'm going to conquer death from inside. I'm going to conquer death from within death. And it was this feat that defeated all death for all time. At one blow, instead of having to bring people back one at a time, and that only temporarily, like Lazarus. Jesus didn't want to do this retail. He wanted to do it wholesale. And he did it wholesale by dying himself. He died himself, and from within the dragon, death, he destroyed death. This crowd assembled because of Lazarus, but they were about to experience the world-shaking triumph of the greater Lazarus. Jesus was far greater than Lazarus because he's the one who spoke the living word from within the tomb. He's the one who laid down his life, and then took it up again. Jesus is the one who does this wonderful thing. And so the disciples did not realize until later that they'd been the instrument of fulfilled prophecy. They didn't know these things at first, but after Jesus was glorified, they realized it all. But Jesus talked to them about his approaching glorification verse 23. And so it had been part of their conversation on that day. Jesus had, had gone over it with them. They talked about glorification, but it was not until they saw Jesus as glorified in the final way that any of the prior preamble glorification made sense. When they were looking at the Palm Sunday glorification and they were thinking, this is the pinnacle, they had it totally confused. When they, saw that Jesus, when they saw Jesus glorified, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, having risen from the dead, having died himself, and they saw his glorification in the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, then Palm Sunday glory came into focus. Then they understood what was actually going on. So note what Jesus ta had taught here. It did not suddenly make sense to them simply because time had elapsed because Jesus had died and was now glorified. It made sense to them because they also had died. It made sense to them because after the, all the events of that week, they had gone through it also. They had gone through this death in different ways. Peter and John, for example, went through it different ways. Peter had to endure the humiliation of denying the Lord. John did not endure the humiliation of denying the Lord, but they all went through it in different ways. The shepherd had been struck and the sheep had been scattered. Jesus died, but so did the apostolic entourage. 
This, in a way, meant the sheep had been struck as well as the shepherd. And when Jesus rose from the dead, so did his followers. And every true follower of Christ, every true follower of Christ has risen from the dead. Everyone. So Jesus did not die so that we might live. He died so that we might die. He lives so that we might live. Too many Christians glibly talk about having a fruitful Christian life or a fruitful Christian ministry. We talk, we talk like we're not paying attention. What does it mean to, if someone walked up to you and said, would you like to have a fruitful Christian life? And you said, well, yeah, yeah. And you say, well, the gallows are over there. The electric chair is over there. Go over here. This is what fruitful Christian living means. They often mean, when we say we want to have a fruitful Christian life, we often mean nothing more than learning how, how not to mess up in obvious ways. We, we think of, well, I want to live a fruitful Christian life. I want to pass all my classes. Or I want a fruitful Christian life because I want to... Uh, not get divorced, or I want a fruitful Christian life because I, I want to navigate all these horizontal obstacles. But a fruitful Christian life actually means being resurrected. It, it actually means coming back from the dead. So we use phrases like this in a way that should make us think of the, of the request made of Jesus at an earlier time, that two brothers might sit with him, one on the right and one on the left. Do you know what you're asking? Jesus asked, do you know what you're asking? The answer at that time was yes, but the real answer was no. They didn't understand it at that time. If you ask to be fruitful, and think, think for a moment, do you want to be fruitful, yes or no? Do you want to be fruitful, yes or no? Not uh, the appearance of being fruitful, but do you actually want to bear fruit? Do you actually want to be a fruitful Christian? When you ask to be fruitful, do you know what you're talking about? Do you know what you're talking about? Not fully, but Jesus still issues the graceful invitation in the midst of his triumph. Come be fruitful with me. That's, what Je that's the only invitation Jesus will give you. Follow me. Do you want to bear fruit? Come be fruitful with me. Follow me. Where you, and we want to say, okay, I do want to follow you. You have you speak with authority. I do want to follow you, but could you answer a few question, questions first? Where are you going? And he says, he's, he's not ambiguous about it. He says, to the cross, I'm going to die. This is why Bonhoeffer says when Christ uh, calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the invitation. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So come, come be fruitful with me. Come and die. The fruit is in the harvest. That's where fruit is. The fruit is in the harvest. The fruit is found in resurrection. That's where all true Christian fruit is, in the resurrection. The fruit is found in the course of our Christian lives as we have been raised, as it says in Romans 6, as we have been raised in newness of life. That's the only, that's the only hope. That's the only option. That's the only fruit. That's the only thing that tastes like anything. Everything else is misery, shame, sadness, and despair. Everything else stinks. The only thing that is welcoming, the only thing that we need to understand is that when God bids us to come and die in Christ, when he bids us to follow Christ to the cross, that is a gracious invitation. It's the only way out. It's the only way out. Are you stuck in your head? Are you stuck in your sins? Are you stuck in your lies? Are you stuck in your self-centeredness? Are you stuck in your laziness? There is only one way out. Stuck in your lusts? Stuck in, all, in your covetousness and your greed? There's only one way out. That's to die. And when you die... You die in Christ, you follow him, you die in Christ, you're buried with him, and you're raised with him, and you're ascend, you, you, you ascend with him to the right hand of God the Father, and at the right hand of the Father, as it says in Psalm 16, there's a torrent of pleasure, there's a river of pleasure flowing forever. That's the only way. There's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way out, and that way is to follow him you welcome, welcome him to Jerusalem. That's what you ought to do. Sing, sing to him. That's what you ought to do. But then follow him 
follow him to the trial, follow him to the cross, follow him to the grave, and follow him to heaven. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that you would help us understand these things. Eating is something people do when they come back from the dead. When Jesus raised the little girl from the dead, he instructed her parents to give her something to eat. When Jesus rose from the dead, he asked for food and ate with his disciples a number of times. And John says that when the dead are raised at the great resurrection, there will be a great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So one of the things this meal is telling us and teaching us is that we are alive again. This is a meal for the born again, the dead and alive again. This is a meal for every Lazarus in the history of the world. If you are in Christ, then you were dead in your sins and you died when he died and now you live again by his spirit. And so naturally, you're invited to eat something. It's what people do when they're alive again. This helps explain why this meal is such a small meal, perhaps, not a full feast, a piece of bread and a small cup of wine. Why such small portions, you might wonder. Part of the answer is this meal is a symbolic meal. These are signs and seals of the body and blood of Jesus. And Paul says that if you're really hungry, you have homes to eat in. So the point isn't that you need to eat because you're hungry. The point is to demonstrate that you're really alive. Look, we're all saying with Jesus, I'm really alive. That may seem like playing with words, but I don't think it is at all. Because all week long, the world, the flesh, and the devil attack the people of God, accusing you of your sin, accusing you of your failures, feeding you lies about your future, about your past, tempting you to despair, tempting you to fear. And at the root of all the devil's lies, the center of the devil's power is the fear of death. And so in the face of your doubts and fears, Jesus invites you here week after week, and he himself assures you that he is alive again from the dead. And therefore, if you are alive in him, then you also are alive again. Death has no hold on you. And since we are alive again, we should do what people do when they are alive again. We should eat. Look, we're all saying, death has no power here. I'm alive again. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you sent your son, that he died in our place, that you crushed our sin and condemned it all in him, and that there's no remainder. And so now there's no condemnation. Father, we thank you that you raised him, and when you raised him, you raised us up as well. Father, we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name, and amen. Would you see Jesus? Would you see the glory of Jesus? Jesus says, come, follow me, follow me to the cross, follow me to the grave. And we say, yes, we want to go. And of course, there's still something in every one of us that says, but, but can I keep my hand on the steering wheel just a little? Just, just help you a little bit there, just so it doesn't hurt too much, just so it doesn't do the one thing that I just don't really want to do. And, and the answer of Jesus is no. Take your hand off this, stop. You, you don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, and he told us, he showed us, he proved he knew what he was doing because he entrusted himself to his father. He went all the way to the point of death for us. He was raised again so that we might trust him, that we might trust him with it all. So go out from here under your God's blessing to follow your Savior to the cross, to the tomb, and to glory, trusting in him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up its counts upon you and grant you his peace. And amen. amen.